Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever, however, and whenever you're listening. Welcome to another episode of The Melanin Report. I'm your host, Marquise Lupton, and you know we got another dope one for you today. That was my MLK voice, (laughs) (laughs) just in case you wanted to know. We are going to have another great show for you today. It's Monday, so it is part one of our three-part conversation, podcast conversation this week. We are bringing you the news, and you know what that means when we have the news. We have our scholarly cousin on the show. Cousin, what's up? Dr. Tamika Campbell. How hey, you doing? Hey, hey, hey. I'm doing great. I was trying to be quiet in your intro, but you were just making me laugh. <laughs> Very funny. Well, that's all right. That's all right. I'm going to be talking like this <laughs> periodically. All right. So, um, folks, what, what do we have today? Well, I'm glad that you asked. We are talking about black people and beer. We have not one, but two stories digging into that. Also, Hispanic Heritage Month is upon us. Uh, So we are going to be talking about um, our Hispanic brethren and sisters about what is guiding them through life's work through the generosity of the Hispanic spirit. And finally, TikTok was built off of black creators. This week, we are going to be talking about this school to prison pipeline. So what better way than to talk about TikTok? Again, it is Monday. It is part one of our podcast series this week and we're going to give you what you need give you what you wanted and give you what you did not know existed so here's our first story. the first black woman-owned beer company in dc is seeking twenty thousand dollars in funding to realize a brick and mortar vision so What is going on? Urban Garden Brewing, the first black woman-owned beer company in Washington, D.C., is looking to plant roots in the city and is fundraising $20,000 to support the effort. Founder Imani Collier is closing to sign a lease on Urban Garden Brewing new home in the Fort Trotton area, but she's in need of a significant amount of financial backing to help make her dream a reality. And this is reported by WTOP News. She says to support that process, we're looking to raise twenty thousand dollars. Excuse me, twenty thousand dollars in order to help with our legal requirements and permitting to help speed the process along. So we're just reaching out to our community, like, hey, you seen what we can do? You see the passion behind this, the people behind this. Now we're just asking for the help to get us to that next point, so we can make this dream come true. Urban Garden Brewing has made waves in Chocolate City by collaborating with breweries around town and hosting lots of events to get its handcrafted beers into the hands of potential customers. Well, first of all, I'm going to say when I go to D.C., I'm going to make it a point to uh, purchase my malt beverage uh, from the Urban Garden Brewing. 100%. Yes, yes. This is definitely uh, one of those things that the community has to come together to make sure that this happens. Uh, I will get into the statistics later, but when we're talking about women in beer and black women in beer, we are talking about single-digit percentages here. So... Yes. Let's give this sister all the help that she needs. Dr. K. Oh, yeah. I mean, reading her story and first of all, the number $20,000 strikes me is not a lot of money. Right. So I'm very confused as to what the path has been. So that's what I was wondering. And I was reading this. I was like, what was her path to getting to this number? Because let me tell you. 
the dominant culture is opening up a brewery every five minutes. Yo. Every time I turn around, <laughs> it's a new brewery, especially yeah. in places like D.C. and these other urban areas. And yeah. so um, I'm thinking about some of the folks locally here who have who have um, done winery, try to do a brewery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a couple of winery folks and the rules around making this stuff in your home yeah. versus having a brick and mortar are very different. And, and that making that leap to the brick and mortar is often cost prohibitive and stops a lot of people yeah. from scaling their business up. And so watch, you know, reading yet another story of another black and brown um, brewery or winery that is having such a hard time making that leap. I, I, I'm often confused because, one, the black dollar is so important in our economy. Yeah. And so I know that people, she even states it in the, in the article, I know that people want her stuff, right? But right. having the startup capital to produce the stuff, to produce the beer that people want, produce mm-hmm. the product people want, is often a huge leap. And it's also a higher bar to climb for black and brown businesses, particularly alcohol-based businesses, yeah. to get the startup funding they need because of, let's just call it what it is, racism. Right. Um, they just do not get the same reception based on nothing nothing other than, at first I thought it was, oh, maybe their business plan isn't good. Oh, then maybe it's another thing. And I've been looking at some of these local and regional examples to see, you know, like, why don't we have a, a, a thriving black brewery? Who has tried? Right. Who has, you know, and and looking at some of these things, after you know the people who write the plans and do and, and uh, provide the information that looks almost identical mm. to some of the other folks who put forth their plans and are thriving in these areas, um, it's kind of sad to Very much see so. how it just isn't. It isn't the same reception. It's just right. not. <clears throat> right. It's not. And 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 there's there's this there's this stigma. You know, I don't know why, but here in 2023, here we are. That that black people don't brew beer. The, not only that, yes, the stigma is they don't brew beer, even though they certainly drink it. Yes. And even when you see the numbers, for example, we have a beer here, and every time they make this beer, which is not year round, mm-hmm. we buy all of it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a black-owned brewery right here. Really? Yes. Harris Family. Shout-out to Harris Family Brewery. Oh! Shout-out to Black of the Berry, which is the Juneteenth beer they do every year. And um, shout-out to Brian Prolific Hickman, who does the art on that, who hey, did the art on that can. the homie. Yes, the homie. And um, every year we buy this. And, and we, we buy it in quantities. I buy, mm-hmm. I buy at least a, uh, a case or two throughout the season. Oh, wow. Um, but but having the capital to do that work, to continue doing that important work, people want that. And they partner with Zero Day. Shout out to Zero Day, too. They do a great job of partnering mm-hmm. um, and helping with that. But getting this, getting over that startup cost hump, you know, I know the person who wrote that business plan. I understand part of that model. Not all of it, but a, a good part of it. Um, have a copy of that business plan. Yeah. It is just as stellar as other plans that have come forth. Mm. Seen it. Um, and to know that black and brown folks, one, it's a it's a generational wealth gap problem. Let's yeah. start there. People who are starting businesses in this economy pre and post COVID. Why are we post COVID? Because it's coming yeah, back. Yeah, We're going to talk about that at some time. But <laughs> um, this goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Was that last week where um, n- n- black new black new businesses, black small businesses, new ones fail at a rate of six times their white counterparts. 
And it is solely because of starter capital. That's why I thought the the 125 million infusion was not enough mm. because of the trillions and billions of dollars that billions of dollars in in revenue that are generated by black owned businesses that affect a trillion dollar economy. Yeah. Um uh I just don't think it's enough of an infusion. There it, you're not starting from the same place, period. Mm-hmm. And I just again, getting back to the $20,000, I just think it's I just don't understand why this com- I don't know why this v- seemingly very thriving business why why $20,000 be the right. hope? But knowing how difficult it is for black and brown, particularly alcohol-based businesses. Right. I feel as though that 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 this is this is one or two investors away. Yeah. Like I can Literally. definitely see one investor saying 20,000. Oh, I got you. Somebody got $20,000. Yo, like some 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 kind of you know, e- even a community foundation with some kind of grant or DC. something. One of y'all Yo, got $20,000. Somebody I, give this lady $20,000 right, to stop playing. Right. Come on. Obamas? <laughs> Somebody out, y'all's out there. Give them the $20,000. Right, yes. Right. So, uh so here's here's some uh statistics for you all. At the end of 2020, there were 8,884 craft breweries in the United States. Of those, approximately 1% are black-owned. Approximately meaning not yet almost 1%. <laughs> it's, I don't think it's even 1%. I think it might have just gone over one because when it was 8,500, not the 8,800, they were like, maybe it's one. So maybe you just got over 1%. Over that home. That, yeah. That's another home. Another there. home. <laughs> and, and of the 138,000 jobs created by the craft beer industry, Black workers accounted only for, wait for it, four mm. percent. You know, so, so pitiful. <laughs> so, like we said, it's so pitiful. Single digit statistics here. Single digit statistics here. So, I'm looking forward to uh, this woman getting her well deserved investment and uh, being one of those businesses to to increase these numbers um, if they can be increased. So we're going to move on to our next story, but kind of keep in the same flow of things. Uh, So uh, this comes from Blavity and how the National Black Brewers Association is changing the landscape of the brewing industry. So beer is a conversation starter and Marcus Baskerville and the National Black Brewers Association want more black people to do the talking. Side note here. I think this is a association I'm going to join. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. Baskerville is the director of brewing at Weatherhead Souls Brewing Company and a founding board member of the NB2A. He is part of the association's charge to foster inclusivity and black representation in the brewing industry. His brewing journey began with a gift that sparked a sibling rivalry between him and his brother. This is really cute. <laughs> While the brewmaster admitted that his, his first batches were... Were horrible, it sparked something in him. Baskerville followed a new finance position uh, to San Antonio, Texas, where he became active in the local brewery and home brewers community. He recalled a moment of inspiration that came from having the chance to listen to Annie Johnson on the Brewing Network. Johnson represented a lot in the brewing community as the first black person, woman, and LGBTQ uh, plus identifying person to win Home Brewer of the Year. Baskerville admitted he was contemplating quitting, putting efforts into his craft until he heard her speak. Hearing somebody that looks like me, someone from the same areas of diversity as me, someone black, 
I finally saw somebody that had reached the pinnacle of what beer was, and it motivated me, he told Blavity. The motivation turned into a beer that Baskerville still has on his taps today. He continued to make a name for himself in the San Antonio brewing community, introducing local bars and restaurants to new beers. Mm-hmm. So finally, Baskerville chose to open his first brewery in the quest for something that gave him more creative control. In 2016, him and his partner, Mike Holt, opened Weather Souls Brewery in San Antonio. And in 2022, they added a second location in Charlotte, North Carolina. Wow. Yeah, so these... Congrats to them. Yeah, That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, these brothers are, are are definitely doing it. So in 2020, Baskerville launched the Black is Beautiful campaign as his, as his contribution to the efforts supporting policy reform and victims of police firearm brutality. Over 1,600 breweries participated in the creative collaboration using the signature stout and beer design. The campaign raised over five million dollars i'm going to use myself as a example here because um during during the pandemic during the shutdown um i'll say that because i feel like we're still like in the midst of a pandemic you know um i i didn't see you know um biden um officially say mission accomplished uh like like other presidents uh prematurely uh have have done uh, so, <laughs> right. So, um, uh, so I don't know, but but becoming a pandemic, because guess what? Start back up next month. Student loans. Anyway, oh man, another story. <laughs> that's another story. For another yeah, day. that's another. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. So, um. Brewing. Brewing. I. I really thought about brewing my own beer and 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 having having these um different flavors infused and yeah. everything. But the issue was for me was that I couldn't find anybody. That brood. Yeah. You know, somebody that that looked like me, that knew the flavors that Absolutely. that I wanted to use. Yeah. You, you know, I, I didn't have that readily available, so I decided not to. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm just thinking about how many people were were like that and you know, they didn't have the resources to do, so they just didn't. Absolutely. I think that was the one of the most interesting parts of the story was Having someone who looked like them, understood, yeah. you know, had accomplished. And the accomplishment parts, people really do not, they don't give enough credence to having somebody who looks like you who has accomplished, who has gotten somewhere yeah. in the industry that you want to be in because it gives you a path forward. Right. It's not just about having someone to look up to. It's about having a path that his, that you don't have to chop down all the trees to make the road. Right. Um, and so I think that that's one aspect. And the other aspect, too, is... The flavors. I feel like folks think that black folks don't like beer as a as a rule. Right. <laughs> Maybe you just don't have flavors that we let black folks like. Right. How about that? <laughs> and I think it's important for people with different kinds of palates to be in the game. For example, there's a very famous, fam- locally, regionally famous brewery, we won't say their names out here, who when they started, they had their beer was terrible. It's like their brewery <laughs> winery, winery. Horrible beers. Mm-hmm. Terrible. But they kept refining their work, just like he was talking about, Mm -hmm. and was able to—now they have really good beers. They have a peanut butter beer that is amazing now. I know. But it took six tries because the first time they ever made that peanut butter beer, it tasted like dirt outside of the the (laughs) winery. But that process that you have to fail and try again is also something. It's that chopping down the trees and making the path. That process you have to fail and try again and come up with something good is not usually afforded to— non-dominant culture folks who especially want to try in these spaces 
places. I will even take it back to a historical place. A lot of the um, alcohol-based industry around the country, black and brown folks had a hand in it early on, but they weren't. The, what this this article focuses on is not just black-owned, but black-led. This is yeah. important. Yeah. Um, I forgot. We talked about this, I think, off air one time. But there was a brother in Tennessee who had a hand in making bourbon, who was opening up his own bourbon yes, spot, yes. who had a hand in another bourbon company, a white-owned white bourbon company. Black and brown folks getting the, 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 the chance to lead in order to come up with expanding the, the, the entire profile of a certain alcoholic beverage like beer is yeah. few and far between. So, of course, so of course we're going to take, you know, black folks and, and, okay, black folks are not a monolith. But, of course, black folks are going to taste certain types of beers that are palatable to certain types of people. And we like, nah, that's not something I like. Versus having someone in the game who has gotten the chance to try and fail again, yeah. try and fail again, come up with something better. He even said it. My beers were terrible when I first started. It's, it's another important part of the process that we don't get to. It's The the opportunity to do that is just not avail, widely available to black folks, brown folks, people who are not dominant culture. And when I say dominant culture, I do mean white. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Dr. K mentioned um, the the uh, black owned craft brewery uh, that that is that is here. Yes. Uh, so the uh, Harris family brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, so just in case you all don't know who who they are, uh, they have a, a tasting room. Uh, 300 South 18th Street. Mm-hmm. Is that still? I don't think it is um, up and running right this second, but it was up and running for a little while. I think a little bit pre-pandemic. Oh, okay. So may- maybe it, it, they were working on it. So we can verify that and let the listeners know if it's still there. All right. All right. Well, uh, here here is some, um, some statistics for you when it comes to uh, uh, black history. In, in craft beer. Um, so, among those treasures of, of blacks in beer, uh, we have been brewing beer ever since the 1970s. Theodore Ted Mack led a group of African-American entrepreneurs to purchase peoples based in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Mack used his own savings as well as funds from the federal government's Small Business Administration and the group of collaborators was inspired by big goals, a quest for racial, economic, and cultural inclusion mm. and equity with beer as the catalyst. Uh, so uh, shout out to uh, Theodore Ted Mack, uh, who is one of uh, the first black-owned breweries in America. Wow. And that was in Wisconsin in 1970. Uh, so um, when when we think about uh, black people and beer, we really don't think about the historical aspect of it. And yeah. I will say this. That sounds like a monologue. Uh, yeah. So it sounds like a monologue. It, it, it definitely sounds mm-hmm. like a monologue. So stay tuned because I'm definitely we definitely are going to uh, dig more into this G- going on to our next story. Moving along. Black siblings, black oh, yeah. sibling entrepreneurs, yes, yes, black sibling entrepreneurs making history with all natural plant-based hair care products. All, all, all I'm going to say is that I hope my daughters are listening because, uh, yeah, retired dad, <laughs> retired dad. Uh, so 
The Smith sisters, uh, this is Glennis and Shelly Smith, embarked on their path to success in 2018 when they founded their company. Their mission was clear from the start to address the, the unique hair care needs for black women and transform the world of textured hair care. Their products, now widely used in hospitals, have made a significant impact on the diverse needs and environments of children. The Smith sisters spent seven years owning a beauty supply store in 2000, followed by over two decades of operating Braid Havens, a hair salon that became a local legend. Their stories have been featured in prestigious magazines such as Allure, Essence, Casey Studio, American Salon, and various local media outlets. Now, their latest creation, the nutritional hair growth and scalp oil, stands as a testament to their commitment to serving their community hair care needs. It's not just a product. It pays homage to our cultural roots, says Shelley. This unique formula is designed to stimulate hair follicles, promoting growth, thickness, and hair strand fortitude. Mm. The motivation behind this visionary product is deeply rooted in Glennis and Shelley's connection to their native culture in Guyana, Guyana, which is in South America. Mm -hmm. They recognize the profound need for a culturally inspired hair care solution resulting in a harmonious blend of natural and organic ingredients. Glennis and Shelley, the driving forces behind Meme Natural You, extend a warm invitation to everyone to join them on this incredible journey to healthier, more vibrant hair. Well, Mm-mm-mm. call me call me a bandwagon because I'm hopping on. That part. I am, I, I am we all in for there. this. I'm yes, with it. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so you can uh, email them at, um, at memenaturalu.com. You can find their email up on there. And, and Meme Natural, you is a proudly black woman-owned hair care brand dedicated to celebrating the beauty of textured hair inspired by their Guyanese heritage. Ooh. Again, I'm I'm here for this. You know, I'm um um I'm about I'm about uh three weeks from 40 and my hair is thinning, so I am <laughs> I'm all for strengthening my roots and 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 also, um, uh, <laughs> talking about my thinning hair, um, I I tried a product to to, to thicken my hair, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and it was it was what I would call a a, a harsh product, uh, uh, because what ended up happening was it ended up giving me a bunch of um, uh, psoriasis uh, uh, marks all over my head. Um, you know, I had locks falling out oh! and, and, and and everything. I would have died. <laughs> oh, but it just fell out, fell over right I, there. I almost went when when, when I woke up and saw one of my locks just staring at me. Yep, I would die right there. And there. <laughs> I was like, oh. take me out the glory. Yeah, that's what they had to do. Absolutely, mm-hmm. looking at you in your face. Yeah. Oh yeah, the hair journey is is ridiculous, right? I mean, black hair. So. Let's take a little walk down memory lane. Once upon a time, YouTube happened. And that is when the black hair care revolution happened. Mm. The the revolution of black hair care was absolutely on YouTube, um, where folks were trying out their own remedies, trying out their own concoctions. This is after Carol's Daughter, the advent of Carol's Daughter, which was like some of the first big name hair. That was, um, what's her name? Jada Pinkett Smith. Some of the first big name hair care solutions. Um that people turn towards um, to kind of like find what happened with their, with their hair. Um, there are other ones, you know, people, you, you can go back in the day and see um, the different, you know, 
hair care products that black people gravitated towards. But YouTube is what started teaching black women about slip, about fairy knots. Okay, Hmm. do those words sound familiar to you? That's because you're not a black woman <laughs> on, on YouTube hair care. Black women on the you know uh, black women hair care revolution on 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 YouTube was crazy, and but it taught you about the kinds of even down to the ingredients mm. that really worked well for your hair. Shout out to marshmallow root that people did not know provided the type of slip that would help you detangle your hair, and that started showing up in a lot of products like Miss um, Jessie's products, like the. Um, uh, Aunt Jackie's products, right? Mm. All these different products started to include these these ingredients that literal hair care vloggers were exploring on YouTube. So I am proud to see um, this new company coming out with an all-natural line because that became the issue. Mm. How do you um, kind of reconcile a hair care history for black hair that dealt in a lot of chemicals like with with relaxers yeah. and all these other things and companies that were calling themselves um, making black hair care products that weren't really advantageous for black hair, right? That would still contain a lot of these. Everything is a chemical. I, don't, I just want to say that. Everything contains chemicals, but some of those chemicals turned out to be, over the long run, not that great for your hair. Mm. One of my favorite hair care companies, shout out to As I Am, had back back when I was exploring hair care, had some of the 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 more natural, more you know, plant based and more natural things. Now we've got one that is all plant based. This mm. is great. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the a lot of the hair, if you look at the the YouTube Black Hair Care Revolution, you will see that a lot of the things they tell you about the butters and all the. <laughs> <laughs> the the different things um, are all it, it all lent towards a natural plant based model, hmm. right? But That's it wasn't. It is interesting when you look at. I, I I use shea butter in my hair almost exclusively for a year, and that's what helped bring my edges back when mm-hmm. I was living in Brooklyn. What gave my hair the moisture? Um, both New York and Pennsylvania water is pretty. It's New York has really good water, but it's hard water. Mm-hmm. Um, and that hard water, if you don't have good products, can really dry your hair out and cause yeah. a lot of breakage. Um, so learning, learning even for your geographic area, how to take care of your hair mm. was something that myself and a lot of the other women learned on YouTube. Mm. So, so looking at their ingredients, if you look at their ingredients, I like looking at ingredients because it's very important. OK, <laughs> um, when you look at some of the ingredients on their website and some of the things that they have in their in their catalog, um, one of their big products is something called Tamuka. Mm. Um, I think Tamuka. I'm saying that right. And um, those those products kind of teach they, they kind of use their products as a as a as, I don't think they use it purposely, but they. They're teaching you through what they put in their products what's good for your hair. Um, okra and Tamuka root are two of the biggest um, products that they have. Um, so I'm sorry, Tukuma. I did that wrong. Tukuma butter. So Tukuma butter, um, fatty acids, omega-3s, um, and then also okra, which has the ingredients that give good slip for your hair for mm-hmm. detangling, are big in their products. Wow. Both plant-based, both um, uh, natural uh, some of their other products are biotin infused, mm. naturally occurring biotin from from the plant based products. So, I'm very happy to see this. I actually had a friend. I haven't personally used it yet, but I actually had a friend who has already used some of their products and loves it. Really? Um, look for a hair a, a black girl hair care swap near you that probably will feature some of these things. 
But most importantly, mm-hmm. this is what I really like about their products that they say up front. No sulfates, no parabens, no alcohol, mineral oil, wow. petroleum, no propylene glycol, yeah. no, I don't know how to say this one, flates. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it looks like to me, but it's P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S. Um, and these are important because of when the pro- when so- and I won't name any specific names of products, but when some of these so-called black hair pair products were coming out, this is what's in them. Mm. These are the these are the main ingredients in a lot of those products. Yeah. So to see one that to see a set of products that specifically says these aren't in our products is a big. It's a huge transformation from where we started with black hair care products. Um, you know, even twenty years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Years ago. The the revolution that 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 is just crazy that you said that because I'm <laughs> I'm thinking about I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about Whitney yeah. and 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 how uh when when she had our first child. Yeah. You know, uh that's uh, after she had our first child, she switched over to just being all natural. Yeah. And and I remember coming home and she would be like I would leave. I yeah. would leave home. <laughs> She'll be in front of the mirror yeah. listening to YouTube. Yes. You know, detangling, yes. you, you know, and 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 then I'll get home and she's either still on her hair or she's now on the baby's hair now. And and it's that's interesting that, that you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's bringing my life full circle. So Isn't uh that something. <laughs> yeah. Let's uh let's let, let's bring this story full circle and give you some some information that you can uh chew on. So in recent years, black consumers have consciously shifted from general hair care products to specific mm-hmm. black hair care products. And in the U.S., it is estimated that black women specifically spent about 3000 U.S. dollars each year on hair care, which is relatively higher than their white counterparts. Oh, yeah. I will say this. That average seems kind of low. I was going to say. <laughs> because, and part of that, right, is because we were talking about we have been trying and untrying and retrying yeah. products. Because we don't know what's good. This is new. And so $5,000 didn't kind of load me. Yeah. Kind yeah. of because of the treatments. And when I right. go to this one, I go to that one. And I get, I try a whole set, th- either throw it out or swap it because that's not for my hair type. I mean, I could just go on and right. on. <laughs> right. And, um, uh, and, and according to Nielsen, uh, the industry, uh, the hair care industry is estimated to be valued at $2.5 billion. Yes, that sounds about right. And 85% of African Americans report using... Hair care products, yeah. specifically to design their hair. Uh, furthermore, black consumers spend nine times more on hair care than any other ethnic group. And sales in this sector have grown by 13 percent since 2020. So it's big business. You know, um, Huge. black 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 hair care is, is is big business and it will continue to be big business. So. On to our next story. Hispanic Heritage Month. Voices guiding lives work through generosity of their Latino and Hispanic spirit. This comes from Penn Live. So to mark... Hispanic Heritage Month, which is September 15th through October 15th, 
Penn Live will be showcasing residents from central Pennsylvania who represent the thriving and dynamic Latino community in the region. So they will use Hispanic or Latino. Uh, Both terms convey the diverse culture and ethnic community that claims ancestry from about two dozen countries and one territory, including Mexico, Central and South America, the Mm. Caribbean and Spain. And Pennsylvania's Latino community has seen explosive growth in recent years. Let's talk about it. The growth of the Latino community in Pennsylvania between 2010 and 2020 far outpaced that of the whole state and offset declines in population of other groups. U.S. Census numbers show that Pennsylvania's population grew 2.4% in that time frame, while its Latino population grew 46% during that same time. The Pew Research Center found that of the 12 states with at least 1 million Hispanics, Pennsylvania saw the fastest Latino population growth during the last decade. And and <clears throat> uh, finally, there, there are uh, folks around Pennsylvania um, Latino and Hispanic folks that that are making some major waves like Representative Joanny Cepeda. I hope I'm, I'm saying that right, uh, who is a restaurant owner and former Reading City Council president mm. and last year became the only Latina in the legislature and the first Democrat elected to represent Berks County's district of 129. Uh, so there there are. Um, a lot of great Hispanic and Latino yes. residents uh, here, here in Lancaster, here, here in Lancaster, here in Pennsylvania, uh, that are doing major, major things. Um, one, one that I think of um, specifically is Norman Bristol Cologne. Yes, Norman. Um, Shout out to Norman. Yes, yes. Who, who at one time uh, ran for mayor in Lancaster, and 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 honestly. I thought that he was going to win. Um, I thought that he he I'm he surprised had, he didn't still to this day. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, so so I think about him, but but then from that point to where he's at now, it really feels like the the, the capacity that he's in now, he has he he has more more avenues to help uh, versus versus being yes. being confined to. To be being a mayor, if yes. you can be confined right. to being a mayor, but but uh, it, it it just feels like um, his his I don't know his his swag his aura uh, his exploded right yeah, right uh, once once he got with the state and absolutely. then what and did he very, do he's done a he's done a lot right <laughs> <laughs> right and and he ushered in others to assume positions as well. That's Which how you do it. Which should be the standard. Which should be the standard, <laughs> yes, if yes. we're being honest. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I I am here for it. And um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It is It is a Hispanic Heritage Month. So happy Hispanic Heritage happy Month. Heritage. Yes. So this is um, something that is near and dear to my heart, a subject that is near and dear to my heart as someone who lives in a city where the population is 78 on a, on a bad day. Um closer to 80 on a good day, black and Hispanic, mm. with a big overlap between the black and the Hispanic part. Yeah, And um, just on the show, shout out to Black News Beat, we just um, featured a couple of uh, uh, Afro-Latina young women and a Colombian young woman who mm. are doing a lot of great work in the community. Yep. But what was really special about it, I think, is that getting to hear their stories of experiencing Central Pennsylvania as um, Latino women, Latina women were very different, but had so many commonalities because one was a 
you know, a brown Latina and another one was a black Latina. Mm -hmm. And listening to their stories of how they have been getting into positions where they can affect change for the greater community have been amazing. Um, One of the young ladies did a really good job of explaining that it's, you know, she does this work absolutely to lift up the Latin, la, Latinx population, but also to show people what it's like to come together under some of these very similar value systems, cultural values and things. Mm-hmm. And that's what Hispanic heritage was all about for her. Um, another thing that's very interesting here with just in Central PA is that Lancaster, Harrisburg, York, um, what I see as some of the major kind of like little metropolis here in central PA, Mm -hmm. very heavy Hispanic population. Yes, indeed. And I think it's undersold. I think it's part of why. So we always talk about Philly, Mm -hmm. Pittsburgh too, these bigger cities where there are a lot of Hispanics. But in the state of Pennsylvania, you'll find one, you'll find Hispanic people doing work and living and thriving almost anywhere. Yeah. Um, I went to school in at a, a state college, main campus, University Park. Mm-hmm. And on campus was one experience, but you step one foot outside of campus and you experience a very rich cult- cultural um, experience full of w- wonderfully diverse Hispanic people. Really? Yes. And I had no idea until I was going to school there. Wow. Um, and so that made me think about where else in, in Pennsylvania that is not necessarily considered a city center, a, yeah. a, a me- metropolitan area, are Hispanic people, where are they? And so I started to look for that, you mm-hmm. know, just kind of wherever I went, I'd be like, because I, I always did it for black folks. I'd be like, where are the black <laughs> folks? <laughs> but experiencing that also made me go, well, where are the, where are the Hispanic people? Where are mm-hmm. they hanging out? And with who, where are they? Allentown has a, a large Hispanic yes. population as well. Places where I think people... You don't know that until you go to visit certain places and you see the plethora. Allentown's great. Shout out to my husband who works at Allentown now. Um, but he was like, yeah, he's like, there's a Hispanic barbershop on every corner here. This is great. <laughs> right? And he's like, he loves it. He's yeah. like, he can find amazing foods yeah. and all these different things. Um, and I think Hispanic Heritage Month, in some respects, should be about, especially here in Pennsylvania, shouting out one, the fastest growing population in the state and the nation. Yeah. And the nation. Um, and shouting out how that rich cultural heritage from so many different Caribbean islands, South American countries, and so on and so forth, how they change the cultural landscape mm. and how they not, not, not just change it, but how it shapes, that's a better word, shapes the cultural landscape for the better. Um, as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, and um, uh, and and it is uh, changing, changing politics, absolutely, and uh, and and with changing politics, you know, um, our populations as well. So, uh, some statistics for you before we get to our fifth and final story: the U.S. Hispanic population reached 63.6 million in wow. 2022. Up from 50.5 million in 2010. Wow. The 26% increase in the Hispanic population was faster than the nation's 8% growth rate, but slower than the 34% increase in the Asian population. Mm-hmm. So in 2022, Hispanics made up nearly one in five people in the U.S. at 19%, up from 16% in 2010, and just 5% in 1970. And finally, Hispanics have played a major role in U.S. population growth over the past decade. The U.S. population grew by 24.5 million from 2010 to 2022 
and Hispanics accounted for 53% of this increase, wow. a greater share than any other racial or ethnic group. The next closest group is non-Hispanic people who identify with two or more races. Their population grew by 8.4 million mm-hmm. during this time. So, again, happy Hispanic Heritage happy Month. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes, and, and, and I hope you all celebrate uh, in a positive and educational way. story tiktok was built Mm. off of black Mm. creators black employees say they face discrimination this comes from the philadelphia tribune so nanette matima said she was attracted to work at tiktok because of how the social media platform was really built upon black culture and the work of black creators she saw and welcomed tiktok's public pledge of support for the black community in the wake of the 2020 police murder of George Floyd and applied to work for the company because she felt its corporate values really resonated with Mm. her. And this is what she told CNN. Shortly after she began working at TikTok parent company ByteDance last year, however, she alleges she encountered toxicity and racism in the workplace. Her manager would refer to her as a black snake behind her back and set unrealistic and uneven expectations for her compared to her white peers. My, my, my. The mistreatment only got worse, she said, after she spoke up about it via Human Resources Channel. Matima is one of two black former bite dance employees who together filed a formal complaint with the U.S. Equal Opportunity Excuse me. With the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, their complaint asked the agency to investigate alleged racial discrimination and retaliation against black workers at the social media giant. Corporate America has long come under fire for racism in the workplace, especially in the wake of the racial reckoning that swept through the nation in 2020. The criticism is especially pointed for technology companies where having employees with diverse perspectives is especially crucial because tech products have faced accusations of perpetuating racial and ethnic discriminations. Yeah, wow. So rather than holding anyone accountable, TikTok denied the blatant discrimination that Ms. Matima and Mr. Carter suffered, failed to stop it from continuing, engaged in sham investigations of their complaints, took away their work, and then terminated them both. And this is what's said in the complaint. CNN has reached out to TikTok for its response uh, to the allegations in the complaint. Um, So, uh, Carter, who began working at TikTok in June 21, told CNN in an interview that uh, he experienced the company and was dehumanized and demoralized. Uh, Carter was initially hired as a risk analysis responsible for managing the safety of TikTok's ad ecosystem, but was transferred to the platform's ad policy team as a policy manager eight months later. Shortly after starting his new role, Carter alleges he discovered that he was being significantly underpaid compared to his colleagues. He says he raised these concerns to human resources and his department leader. Carter was, at the time, the only black employee on his 80-person ad policy team. I'm going to uh, stop right there and get into this commentary. Being, being, Being the own black person in a space... That can get very exhausting. Ooh. 
very exhausted. I'm exhausted just listening to the just listening to you read it over. Yeah, I already read it and I put it down four times. <laughs> flashbacks, trauma, trauma, flashback. Yeah. That's how I felt reading it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this this th- this was giving me high school. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Lancaster Catholic. <laughs> the, the, this was very much so mm-hmm. giving me high school and and me giving these complaints to the nuns giving these complaints to the priests about the racist stuff that was going on in the school and them not doing anything. Wow. You know, the the sham investigations. Mm, oh, okay. Mm, mm, mm. We'll we'll take a look into it. And and them and them coming to me after they take a look into it and say, "Oh, well, you know, he really didn't mean to say that." You know, and and it's, it's just he like, didn't really or they didn't really mean right, it for me. Right. They said it. And meant it. And meant it. <laughs> said it with their whole chest. And it doesn't matter. <sighs> Don't even get me started because it's trauma. Again, trauma. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the things about this article that I found interesting is it correlates to how black users felt they were treated on the platform, even though mm. black people make the platform. Right. So that was something yes. that I thought was really interesting. The When you read about when you kind of juxtapose, compare, whatever the word is how black users felt like they were com- treated on the platform with how their content was treated. It, They want you to, honey, they want you to shuck and jab on the platform, but start speaking truth and doing some other things. You will get shut down. Your content's going to get pulled. Yep. Um, they're going to deem you a bully, um, aggressive. There's, They have um, very interestingly worded uh, violations. Yeah. Um, that they that are very vague, but, but very much encapsulate a lot of what people of color do that would be considered more... Um, social justice work, civic-minded work, on the platform, community-minded work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's treated very differently than you making a viral dance. Right. Even if there's cursing in the music with the viral dance. If you if you do something that they consider um, not, I don't know, not, not, what's the word for that? Entertainment. That's what I want to say. More entertainment value. You are, your, your, your uh, reach is dampened. Your, your exposure is dampened. And you don't reach the heights of folks who do very less serious things on that platform. Right. Right. And and um, people keep keep going back to, you know, George Floyd. What happened with George Floyd? 2020. What happened with George Floyd? Um, It's 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 like they use that single moment uh, to 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 point out the the change, I guess, the change, change in attitude uh, that that was happening with this country. Um, uh, but even even back then, you know, because that was three years ago, yep. people were still complaining about TikTok. Oh yeah, um, uh, because there there was a a a black TikTok creator strike. Yes, because they felt as though that they were absolutely getting t- taken advantage of. They were, uh, uh, and and even the pay scale. Oh yeah, the black creators. You know that that were getting larger numbers than their white counterparts, but they weren't getting paid One as of my much. favorite channels. He used to do these. I, I, I want to find his name and shout him out. But he used to do these very interesting, um, like Kardashian esque skits, mm-hmm. and would get maybe a couple hundred thousand views, mm-hmm. likes. There were people copying his content word for word who were not black. Yeah. And getting millions of views on a word for word copy.
copy of what he was doing on TikTok. Oh, my gosh. And it was so blatant that he just stopped creating content. People were yeah. just stealing from him and getting millions more views than he was. And the only difference, they literally copied it word for word. Mm-hmm. Literally. And they would shout him out, be like, we're just going to copy what he does, and we're going to shout him out, but we know we're going to get more views. And that is allowed on TikTok. And that's, that's it's, 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 it's that kind of arrogance. Like, like, and, and this is, this, this goes well beyond TikTok because um, we can even look at, um, you know, who folks call the king, Elvis Presley, absolutely you know, and, and he did that exact same thing, you you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to the hood. Yep. I'm going to see what moves. See what they singing. (laughs) See what they dancing. And and take that. And call it my own. (laughs) That's right. And call it and never give any credit, actually. Right. There was also, um, and and this doesn't surprise me, think think about TikTok, who their parent company is, who their CEO is, where they come out of, and think about how they treat black movies and black entertainment Mm. in in that country. When my favorite example is when Black Panther came out and and it got terrible views overseas when it was getting rave reviews here. And they were like, well, the characters are too dark. That was a real critique. That was a real critique. If they would have done it over, they would have had some more lighter skinned characters, it would have been better. That's right. Um, if the characters were so dark, I'm falling asleep because it's boring because I feel like it's too dark in here. It's just a, a visceral, physical response to black people, which was completely racist. But it was there. That was normal. They downplayed it because the people were black. Yeah. And that, and so I don't I don't see a difference. I don't I see a clear correlation to how they treat black content creators, even black music. They have taken black music, R&B. And they've given it their own spin. Yeah. And very rarely credit um, black and brown artists in their work because it's not desirable. Right. It's plain and simple. There's no, I wish there was some more, it becomes more nefarious because people see black folks as not desirable. But the initial piece of it is they just don't see black folks as desirable. Right, right. But they desire to shuck and driving. That's what they want. They it, want to take your content to make yeah. it because because black black people the diaspora not it's 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 a lot of it is black Americans of course, but the black the African diaspora sets culture around the globe because when you look at African Americans when you look at African Brits when you look at African uh, the the French when you look at all the people who are of African descent around the world. In dominant culture countries where they where they are not the dominant, they their work and their cultural contributions to the culture um, resonate so much so that they are always being pilfered all the time, and they steal it with the attribution. And I was a, oh, I just wanted to tell you because I when I read this, I thought of this tweet I saw. So a friend of mine was uh, uh, shout out to. Um, Uppity Negress, she's one of my favorite people to follow. Yeah. Um, she had this tweet exchange with a a a person who swore up and down that because black culture had permeated the world, that it was okay for people to steal it, to appropriate it. Wow. And they were like, well, I wouldn't say this about Vietnamese culture or another culture because it wasn't so pervasive. But because we recognize black culture as being so pervasive, it's not just a black thing anymore. It's an everyone thing, and it's therefore not stealing. And that wow. is the perver- that is the pervasive thought about black culture, black music, black expression. That because everybody likes it, it's ours now. It is the it is the height of imperialism and the height of colonialism. Mm. It's the height of it. It is a modern day um, digital, I would say, colonialism, yeah. digital digital imperialism. Yeah. Oh, well, this is we like it. It's ours now. 
right? We don't really like other culture stuff, but we like y'all stuff. And because it's so pervasive, because because we steal it all the time and we don't attribute it to you, it's no longer just black culture. It's American culture. It's fr- French culture. Yeah. It's UK culture. It's everyone's. That 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 sounds is how they like, think about black culture. That sounds like um, exactly what they th- were thinking in the 1600s when they went and stole people. people. That stole people. Oh, we they're they're hard work. Well, they're ours now. We're just gonna take we're, take them. We're just gonna take them because we can. Because we can. You know that's woo. It's violent, if you yes. ask me. Yes. Very yes. violent. Yes. And it's disgusting. Um, uh, so, Very gross. <laughs> so we we are going to put a pin in it right there. Um, like like always, I want to thank Dr. Kamika Campbell for coming through and dropping those gems with her <laughs> research. Because <laughs> I do yes. the research. Okay? Yes, yes. I do the research. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> when I re-listen to this, I'm like, yo, this might be like... The smartest thing on audio right now. Wow, <laughs> I, I like to think. Yeah, yeah, it 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 really might be. So, uh, so uh, again, I would like to thank you for joining us. It is a heavy week, y'all. I appreciate you listening to the Melanin Report. Just make sure that you hit that subscribe button, hit that share button, because friends do not let friends. Melanin Report alone. <laughs> and on that note. Here's a nice little quote from Sean Carter. Pastor Sean Carter, I like to call him. (laughs) Amen. Hallelujah. We change people through conversation, not through censorship. Mm. Hold that and we'll see you on the other side. This is The Melanin Report. Can have 
Stay.